0: All right, good morning, church. (laughs) Like Larry said, you know, usually after I preach, we sit in my office and we we spend a couple hours going through my sermons and he critiques them and he's, you know, he's very, very thorough about, you know, critiquing and about, you know, what I should and shouldn't do. And so one of the things that he always brings up is that, hey, you kind of cut it a little bit short sometimes. Uh, Maybe you should get a little bit longer. So I've worked on that today. So I hope you guys, I hope you guys are okay with that. I'm just kidding. All right. Get my stuff together. Okay. Hopefully I didn't mix all my notes up. All right. So one of the things I wanted to focus on today, first and foremost, is just to keep things simple. Okay? I want to keep things simple. All right? And I'm going to start off by reading to you something I read that was published in 2015 by Sage McHugh called... Ten Unusual Last Wishes Made by Famous People, which says in part that a person's last wish, no matter how absurd, is almost always carried out as a final gesture to honor the deceased. Many iconic figures that did great things in life arranged for burials that were equally grand. One of the world's most beloved actresses uh, had one request that earned her the last laugh at her own funeral. A notorious writer and counter um, culture icon asked that his remains be shot out of a cannon. Some other creative folks wanted their ashes <clears throat> encased in the products that made them famous. Allowing them to live on forever in their work. One eminent writer uh, had his ashes mixed into ink and immortalized in a comic book. Another noteworthy inventor was cremated and buried in a popular snack container. While some people wish to commemorate their own achievements, others want to express gratitude to their nearest and dearest in a heartwarming act of love. One legendary comedian made sure that his widow received a rose every day for the rest of her life. Yet... Other final requests are just simply bizarre. Millions of dollars left to a dog or arranging a marriage for a pet cat. It's interesting the things that people place value in throughout their lives and how the value of those things can change when a person knows that the end is near. Typically, people draft a will, a last testament to inform their family and their friends about What to do with their stuff and with their remains. And sometimes people who know they're going to die soon reflect on their life and the things that they wish they had accomplished. Often they contemplate regret. Things that they wish they had done done more of, like wishing that they didn't work so much or wishing that they had been more courageous in their life or maybe wishing that they had stayed in touch with family and friends more often. Sometimes people write personal letters that tell others about the things that are important to them Um, or other pieces of important information, uh, like maybe just passing on some hard-earned wisdom or the location of a hidden treasure, if we're lucky. A person's final words or actions can be very important because they are typically very sincere. Remember Jesus' final words on the cross found in Luke twenty three forty six, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. There's a lot to be said for what a person does and says before dying. Leaving all your money to a dog might indicate that you lack to love in your life. And being buried in a Pringles can might indicate a person's love for worldly things. And dying on a cross for the salvation of mankind and committing your spirit to God, as Jesus did, provides a very clear depiction of God's character, which is first and foremost that he is a loving father. And by doing what he did, by sacrificing in a way that only he could, he's provided eternal hope to a broken world. The question is, how do we know that? How do we know Jesus is the hope of the world? For example, one passage in the Bible says this, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's an interesting passage, but why is it credible? Why is this information credible? Why is this source credible? Why do we as Christians put so much faith in the Bible? One of the things I want to look at today is the words of a man who, while faced with imminent death in prison, was able to write a letter to his protege, Timothy, what we call the second epistle to Timothy written by the apostle Paul around AD 66, 67, just prior to his death. And so this is his final letter. And as we discussed earlier, when a person knows that they're going to die, they tend to have regrets. However, that's not the case with the apostle Paul. He wrote this epistle to encourage Timothy to remain faithful, to be encouraged regardless of hardship. And, and he offers so much inspiration or what some might call little nuggets of wisdom, not only for Timothy, but for us today as Christians. And two well-known verses that I want to look at today are found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. With death looming in the near future, Paul tells Timothy and essentially all Christians to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. And to use the scriptures that were given to us by God as we do. Today, we will look at 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 in detail to better understand what it means, what some of the common objections and defenses are, and most importantly, how biblical truth can change the way we live. So let's first take 2 Timothy 3.16 and break it down into seven separate questions to understand exactly what Paul is suggesting here. Notice, Paul starts off by saying that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Making sure to emphasize the whole quantity or the extent of Scripture is included in his statement. Question one, what is Scripture? And remember, we're going to keep things simple today. So the simple answer is it's the Bible. It is the collection of sacred books that were given to us by God in order for him to advance his revealed will. According to Psalm 119, 160, this collection of holy books, this Bible is considered to be the truth. Notice the entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Truth is a fact or something that is in accordance with reality. Meaning that the Bible in its entirety is factual. What is contained in scripture is reality. Most notably, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Josh and Sean McDowell's book, The Resurrection in You, said this. Jesus' resurrection either happened or it didn't. It is an objective reality, and so it cannot be true for one person and false for another. To prove this point, Sean McDowell related the following experiment. He placed a jar of marbles in front of his students, and he asked, how many marbles are in the jar? They responded with different guesses, 221, 168, and so on. Then after giving them the correct number of 188, he asked, which of you is closest to being right? And while they all agreed that 168 was the closest guess, they understood and agreed that the number of marbles was a matter of objective fact, and not one determined by personal preference. This is an important fact when considering the Bible, because unlike many other writings, Christians do not describe the nature, scope, or meaning of God based on personal preference, but rather based on his own revealing of himself as a matter of objective fact what makes the scripture accurate is that it was given by the inspiration of god and so what does given by inspiration of god mean well the simple answer is is that the entire bible was written by god but then you ask I thought the Bible was written by something like 40 men over some 1,500 years. Didn't Paul write the very two verses we're talking about today? One source said that the Bible was breathed out by God, that God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that while using their own writing styles and personalities, they still recorded exactly what God intended. You see, when God breathes out into something there's life in that breath such as when god gave life to adam in genesis 2 7 and the lord god formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being john twenty twenty two says and when he meaning jesus breathed on them and said to them receive the holy spirit There is life-giving power in the breath of God. And according to our verse today, God used that same breath to inspire the human writers of the Bible to ensure that they captured his will and not their own. Another source said this about the God-breathed Bible. These are actually God's words reminding us that his truth and love can be found there to guide us in all aspects of life. This is why the Apostle Paul makes the claim to young Timothy that this God-inspired book is profitable. Notice all scripture is given by inspiration by God and is profitable. So what does profitable mean? We're keeping it simple. The simple answer is the difference between the amount earned and the amount spent. Essentially, profit is earning more than you spend. Or as it relates to the Bible, it means spiritual gain. For example, if you read the Bible, you will gain spiritually from that which God has breathed life into. Proverbs three thirteen and 14 says, happy is a man who finds wisdom and who acquires understanding. For she, meaning wisdom, is better than gold. Proverbs 8, 11 says, for wisdom is better than rubies. And all things one may desire cannot be compared with her. Think about that for a second. Wisdom is worth more than rubies or anything a person may desire. One article I read called the top eight things people desperately desire but can't seem to attain was about some people that did a survey to find out which things people most desired in their lives. Things That they desired included happiness, money, freedom, peace, joy, balance, fulfillment, and confidence. And then they go on to give some pretty lame reasons as to why people cannot achieve those desires. But they concluded with this piece of work. The reality is, they said, it's a tough world out there with many challenges we're just simply not prepared to face. But throughout those challenges, there are countless ways we can remain true to ourselves, leverage our gifts, and foster our self-esteem and passion for life and work. And we can continually build our confidence, happiness, and fulfillment despite these challenges. For that, we need an abundance of self-love, And also, support from others who don't want to tell us what to do, but instead want to help us follow our own internal value system and beliefs. And we need to believe in ourselves without fail, despite the evidence around us that says we're not ready to soar into creating what we long to. What garbage! remain true to ourselves, have an abundance of self-love and support from others that want us to follow our own internal value system and believe and ignore any evidence to the contrary. <laughs> Let's compare this nonsense to the Bible. You desire happiness. Psalm 144 and 15 happy are the people whose God is the Lord You desire money, Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. You desire freedom, 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You desire peace and joy. Galatians 5:22 and 23 But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. You desire balance. Matthew 6:33 But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. You desire fulfillment. Romans 13.8, owe oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You desire confidence. Proverbs 3.26, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Charles Spurgeon said this, there's an infinite majesty about every line of scripture, but especially about the part of scripture in which the Lord reveals himself and his glorious plan of saving grace in the person of his dear son, Jesus Christ. Notice all scripture, meaning the whole Bible is given by inspiration of God, meaning he literally breathed life into it. And that now living word of God Is profitable, meaning the wisdom we gain from it is worth more than the time it took to read it. And then notice, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. What does doctrine mean? The simple answer is that doctrine means instruction or teachings shared from an authoritative source. There are many types of teachers and teachings that take place in our society. We have preschool teachers, elementary school teachers, middle school teachers, high school teachers, special education teachers, bilingual teachers, homeschool teachers, vocational teachers, and Bible teachers. And these teachers have an impact on their students. And they help to shape what they know And what they believe about many things based on the information being shared or taught. This is why the Apostle Paul says, take heed or pay attention to yourself and the doctrine. Continue in them for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. First Timothy 416. The issue associated with teaching is that there are many teachers who teach from many different authorities. For example, when I attended Liberty University, a Christian college, one of the science books assigned was one that promoted intelligent creation and refuted evolution from monkeys. While other colleges prefer to teach from books that support the nonsense that man evolved from snot into walking, talking people. How does a person know for sure which one is correct? According to the Apostle Paul, the Bible is profitable for doctrine or profitable for teachings. And those teachings from the Bible are what shape a person's biblical worldview because they provide God's authoritative wisdom on matters. As an example, earlier we talked about the Bible's inspiration being from God. That information comes from the Bible itself and therefore becomes an essential doctrine to the Christian faith called the authority of Scripture. There are many teacher, uh, teachings in the Bible that establish our faith Christ's deity, 1 Corinthians, Christ's incarnation, 1 John, Christ's resurrection, 1 Corinthians, Christ's return, 2 Peter, salvation by faith. Acts 2. And on it goes. In fact, you can look at our website, smchurch.net, and get a list of statement of faith, uh, faith facts or faith beliefs that we believe here at Shadow Mountain Church. And I encourage everybody to check that out because the reality is there's a lot of Christians that do not understand the basics of Christianity. And as Paul said, it is profitable to know what the Bible teaches One source said that doctrine is the worldview by which we govern our lives. If our doctrine is based soundly on scripture, we can know that we are walking on the path God designed for us. However, if we do not study the word of God for ourselves, we are led more easily into error. And so according to Paul, God's word is profitable for providing us with information from God and is what we use to establish our beliefs. And then notice those beliefs are profitable for reproof and correction. What does reproof mean? Reproof. Reproof simply means an expression of blame or disapproval or sharp criticism. When a brother or sister decides not to walk with God in their lives, The Bible provides a lot of information about that, such as in 1 Samuel 13, 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord. In this case, Saul was waiting on Samuel to make an offering and he became impatient. And he did it himself before Samuel got there. And by doing so, became disobedient to God and the consequences were great. But Samuel essentially called him out for it, which is what a good Christian would do in order to help a brother or sister, especially when their actions may have offended God. For example, if you go and set an appointment to go see the pastor and you tell him that you are cheating on your spouse, you are not going to receive a pat on the back you are going to receive instead reproof. You are going to receive disapproval because those actions offend God and they're sinful. You might recall the situation in the New Testament when Peter would have dinner with Gentiles, but then when other Jews would come around, he would withdraw and separate himself from them. Essentially being a hypocrite and not wanting other Jews to see him with the unclean ones. A hypocrite by the way is someone who claims to have a moral standard or claims to be a Christian but their behavior doesn't conform to those standards. And that hypocrisy actually provoked Paul to demonstrate disapproval to show reproof towards Peter. Galatians 2:11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I, Paul, withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. What does correction mean? Correction simply means the action of setting something right. So in many cases, reproof and correction work together. Using the same example as earlier, if you go into the pastor's office and you confess you're doing something you should not be doing, you will first receive some disapproval. This is not what God wants from you. But then you're going to receive some encouragement, some encouragement to correct the action. Or to set it right. it would probably start with prayer and repentance. And then of course you as an individual will make the decision to act. You have to decide if you're going to accept that correction or not. Nobody can do it for you. It is entirely between you and God. Proverbs 10:17 says he who keeps instruction is in the way of life. But he who refuses correction goes astray. I think it's important to point out that as church pastors and elders and deacons or anyone who comes alongside a brother or sister for the purpose of reproof and correction, that we do it from a place of love. Because the reality is every one of us will find ourselves on the receiving end of it if we are sincere about our walk with Jesus. Because as the Bible says, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God reproof and correction are not about judgment they're not tools with which we get to criticize each other but rather they are tools that enable us to help each other to become more like Christ proverbs 27:17 as iron sharpens iron so a friend sharpens a friend and so be aware of who you are talking to and how you are talking when you work to help others because From my experience, Christians generally are prepared to receive loving correction. But as one man said, expecting the precise scalpel of correction, we can sometimes receive the blunt acts of criticism. So sharpen away, but do it with love. I read one story about a taxi driver and a priest that was waiting in line for judgment as at the pearly gates, the taxi driver was... First, he went to St. Peter and said, I'm Brandon Wilson, a taxi driver in New York for 15 years. St. Peter looked at his list and smiled. Welcome, Mr. Wilson. Take this silken robe and this golden staff and enter the gates of heaven. The taxi driver walked through the gates wearing his silken robe and bearing his golden staff. The priest then walked to St. Peter and boomed, I'm Father Dan Snow, who has preached at St. Mary's Church for 50 years. St. Peter looked at his list and smiled. Welcome, Mr. Snow. Take this wool robe and this wooden staff and enter the gates of heaven. Wait a minute, the priest said. Why does a taxi driver get a better robe than me and a better staff than me? I've spent almost my whole life dedicated to the church. Up here we work by results, said St. Peter. While he drove, people prayed. While you preached, people slept. What does instruction in righteousness mean? Instruction in righteousness. Simply means our discipleship or our overall Christian training. Righteousness refers to a moral standard or knowing right from wrong. The Bible has provided us with everything we need to know about managing our lives from raising kids and managing money to relationships The Bible provides instructions on how to do things according to what is morally right according to God. One source said that scripture is the principal channel by which God grows his children to spiritual maturity. This very topic is what is dividing our country today. There are some who hold to the fact that moral standards are subjective And one person's idea of right and wrong should not be forced upon another. These issues have not only divided many people in this country, they are sparking in people the desire for conflict. For example, if you take the topic of murder, which as a society, we originally agreed is wrong. And from a biblical perspective, that law aligns with Christian moral standards, which is why the law is considered good. Deuteronomy 5:17, you shall not murder. But what happens when our society wants to murder an unborn baby? From a non-Christian moral standard, that's okay because the baby's not even a baby. From a Christian moral standard, it is a baby, and if you kill it, you're committing murder which we agreed we weren't going to do. We now have a moral dilemma because as a Christian, we have to live with people that we might consider murderers, even though murder is wrong. So what happens is now that we have to, to try to convince the murderers that they're wrong, we have to reprove them we have to convince them to correct their wrongdoing because god said so but they don't accept god as an authority and instead they're working to convince christians that they are right and god is not but listen as christians we should not be deceived but rather trust in the moral lessons we learn from god 1 Corinthians 15.33, don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. It can feel like a daunting task sometimes, the battle between good and evil. But listen, the answers to all of these issues are in the Bible. And our instructions in righteousness will lead us to where we need to go. The example of abortion is just one topic. You all understand the things going on in our country and, and the, the movement to overthrow God. And it gets scary sometimes. But listen, our instructions in righteousness make it clear that God is in control despite the opposition. And the Bible encourages us to trust in God and not to be afraid. Isaiah forty one ten: fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Paul gives Timothy and us this amazing statement. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then notice in verse 17... That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's break this down into three quick sections. First, the man of God or the servant of God. This term is reserved for people that have made a conscious decision in their lives to follow God, to obey God. To live for God and not for this broken world. Micah 6.8 He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? This is what a Christian is supposed to be. Think about this for a minute. A person who is shown what is good, the Bible, and then is obedient to the requirements of God, which in part is to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God, not to do whatever we want to do, Not to cheat people or to slander people, but to learn what is good and then do it. Second, so that we may be complete. This just simply means to have all of the necessary parts. You can't. Put a model airplane together if you're missing parts. You can't cook a casserole if you're missing the ingredients or the oven. Having the necessary parts is critical to being complete. Can you have an omelet without eggs? Can you have a Christian without grace? Can you have forgiveness without Jesus? No. Colossians 2.10. And you are complete in him. Who is the head of all principality and power? That's Jesus. We are complete in Jesus. Third, thoroughly equipped, meaning you have everything you need to accomplish the task. Not having the proper equipment can cause lots of problems. For example, when people first started to fly airplanes, they didn't actually have gyroscopic turn indicators which would allow a pilot to fly through the clouds or fog without becoming disoriented. They could rely on these devices to ensure that they didn't get caught up in a steep spiral dive or what is called a graveyard spiral. Likewise, as Christians, we can rely on God to equip us with the necessary equipment, tools, or whatever we need for every good work. Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus so let's just recap here real quick paul is in prison writing his final letter to timothy and he wants him to know that god himself has inspired the whole of scripture the entire bible that god has breathed life into that bible And that the information that God has chosen to give us through that life giving breath is more valuable than any earthly treasures and should be used by people to learn about God and what He says is good. It should be used by people to find the errors in their lives and to compare their own desires with those of God's. It should then be used by people to correct those errors in order to better align oneself with the moral standards established by the creator of the universe, so that the servants of God may be complete in Christ and then equipped with all that is needed for every good work post-salvation. Well, that seems like really good advice. Who would object to anything like that? Unfortunately, there are some who don't believe the Bible was inspired by God. And that it is filled with errors. And that it was written by ancient people. And therefore has absolutely no value to modern people. There are many arguments out there. But today I just want to look at a couple of them. As a way to provide a a balanced perspective. The first argument I want to look at. Is that some people believe The Bible is filled with contradictions. Some atheists have made the claim that the Bible, if it were written by God, then it would contain no contradictions at all. And on this particular topic, we agree. If God did inspire the scriptures, then how could they have any errors in them at all? Just to be clear, a contradiction is a combination of statements or ideas or features of a situation that are opposed to one another. One statement saying the sky is blue, the other saying the sky is red. And it's important to point out that there are some very difficult to answer questions that folks have brought up. However, it's equally important to point out that most of the people who find these supposed Bible contradictions are not actually interested in the truth. They simply want to dismiss God's book. Here's an example from the American Atheist website regarding seeing God. Genesis thirty-two thirty. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, For I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Jump ahead. John 118. No one has seen God at any time the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. He has declared him on the surface. They do seem to contradict each other. I have seen God face to face and no one has seen God at any time. However, if we look at the context, we realize that first in Genesis 32, 30, Jacob was wrestling with an angel and eventually becomes victorious in his struggle and then makes the comment that he has seen God face to face. Which does not actually mean that the man he wrestled with was God, but actually an angel of the Lord. And so according to one commentator, it was appropriate to say that he had seen the face of God. But it was clearly an angel. John 1.18. If we just scoop back a couple of verses and read it all together, it says, John through 18 And of his fullness... We have all received and grace for grace for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. John is referring to God in his fullness, meaning his glory, which no man has ever seen. These two verses are not even talking about the same thing one is an angel and the other is god's glory as one commentator put it there is no contradiction as one god or as god can speak face to face with men but not while in all his glory otherwise sinful man would die and i love psalm 126 in defense of the, god's word the words of the lord are pure they pure words like silver, tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. While we may not know the answers to everything, through prayer and careful study, God will reveal what is typically the simple solution. The second argument I want to look at is that Christians can't even agree with what the Bible is saying. So who cares if it's true or not? This is one of those points that everybody should be familiar with there 's so many disagreements in the church about many things, some ranging from doctrinal differences which have caused a lot of issues that churches have even split or even ceased to be churches, and then there's some small secondary issues such as speaking in tongues. but obviously, we have to address the first point first, which is of essential doctrine, disagreements because In most cases, this differentiates between Christians and non-Christians who think they're Christians. For example, a Jehovah's Witness call themselves Christians. However, they do not believe in the deity of Christ, but rather believe that he is Michael, the archangel. Well, that presents a doctrinal issue in that a Christian believes Jesus and God are one and the same because that's what the Bible says. So in John ten thirty, I, meaning Jesus, and my father, meaning God, are one. Therefore, how could Jesus be an angel if he is God? He cannot be the creator and the created. Therefore, one would conclude that a JW or Jehovah's Witnesses are not actually Christians, in which case they don't count in this argument of Christians not agreeing with each other on what the Bible is saying. The second point of secondary issues typically referred to issues not related to foundational doctrines. Meaning two people can be authentic Christians, but not agree on things like free will. For example, there are those inside the church that believe God is sovereign and planned everything. And man has no influence over that plan. Sometimes referred to as a Calvinist. And then there are some who believe that God is sovereign, but has enabled man to choose their own fate, sometimes referred to as an Arminian. Essentially, did God choose you or did you choose God? And while it's true that these types of debates debates and differences have also created division in the church, and in both cases, both sides of that argument have very prominent scholars and theologians supporting them, the reality is that despite those secondary issues, Christians believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we agree that we are totally dependent on his sacrificial atonement in order to receive forgiveness, and therefore are able to respectfully disagree with each other on some matters without compromising our faith. Romans 14, 1-4, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. While we can't always agree on every matter, we can intentionally study God's word to learn all that we can. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a lamp to my path and a light to my path. I read about a Calvinist that arrived at the gates of heaven and he sees that there are two lines going in. One has a sign that reads predestined and the other free will. He naturally heads to the predestined line. While waiting, an angel comes and asks him, Why are you in this line? He replies, Because I chose it. The angel looks surprised. Well, if you chose it, then you should be in the free will line. So our Calvinist, now slightly miffed, obediently wanders over to the free will line. Again, after a few minutes, another angel asks him, Why are you in this line? And he sullenly replies, Someone made me come here. As you can see, it's sort of a loop that doesn't seem to end. <laughs> and so my advice is to be nice to each other when arguing those topics because they are sort of fun to argue, but we should never be disrespectful to each other because at the end of the day, we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, For instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul wanted Timothy to know that as a man of God, this book contains everything we need. And as Christians, we need to increase our view of it. And we need to trust in it. And as one article stated... We need to read our Bible as though it were something entirely unfamiliar. As though it had not been seen before. Face the book with a new attitude as something new. Let whatever may happen, happen. Let whatever may happen to occur between you and it. You don't know which of its sayings and images will overwhelm and mold you. But hold yourself open. Do not believe anything contrary to the Bible. Do not disbelieve anything in the Bible. Read aloud the words written in front of you. Hear the word you utter and let it reach you. Behold the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God in heaven. Thank you so much for today, Lord. Thank you for your goodness and kindness. Thank you, Father, for revealing your will to us. Thank you for providing us this holy Bible, this book that has been drugged through the mud for centuries, this book that has been disputed and fought against for centuries. You have kept intact, perfect for us today. And we are so appreciative. Without this book, we would know so little. We're so grateful that you've given it to us. I pray that everybody here today's heart would be open to read it more intentionally, to study it more intentionally, to value it, to understand how profitable it really is. And I pray, Lord, over this church. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.